Keep your Bibles right there at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. We finished up uh, chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. It was actually three Sundays ago where we looked at the calling of Jesus' first disciples, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, and maybe even James, the brother of John. He may have been involved. He's just not mentioned in, in the gospel here. Uh, in keeping with this gospel's primary goals of evangelism and apologetics, uh, John identifies in this gospel, the author, he identifies eight miracles that basically confirm the deity or the godness of Jesus Christ. That seems to be one of his primary goals in this gospel is to show that Jesus is God and to prove that because that's probably one of the biggest areas of doubt among people. And so that is a driving theme in this gospel and he puts forth eight miracles to show that Jesus has divine power, that he uh, is a divine person, that he's doing things that only God can do. And this morning we're going to look at the first miracle, okay, the turning of water into wine. I've divided our text into four parts. We're going to look at the request, the response, the revelation, and the results. So four R's, okay? You guys ready? I'm just going to pray and then we'll get to it. Lord, I thank you for uh, this time and I thank you for the work that you've already done here today, this morning, helping us to uh, uh, just sing about you and, and to focus on you and the fellowship that we've had and the, the time uh, where we were able to worship you through our giving. Just It's awesome that, that you give us these opportunities by your grace uh, to be in your presence and uh, just to express our love for you and our gratitude to you and to share that with one another. It's such an awesome thing. Lord, now we've come to this divinely appointed moment where, where we take a look at the Word of God and uh, we want to hear from you, Lord. We don't want to hear from Phil. Believe me, that'd be a mess. We want to hear from you, and so we pray that you would teach us this morning. Teach us this text and, and have us take away the lessons and the points, the things that you want us to, to take away from it, that we can apply and live out. It does us no good, Father, just to hear. We need to hear and do, and by the Holy Spirit, we can do both. And so we thank you for this time. Teach us this morning. We humbly acknowledge our weakness, and we humbly acknowledge your power, and we pray that it would be manifest in this place in a unique and special way. Send your Holy Spirit to lead us and to teach us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take a look at part one, the request. That's verses 1 through 3. We're just going to walk through this text. Verses 1 through 3, it says, On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. They have no wine. Stop right there. Three days after Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel to be his disciples, he attended a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Uh, the exact location of Cana in Galilee is actually unknown. We're not sure exactly where that is. We don't have a, a, a pin drop on a map where we can say that is it. We're not exactly sure where it is. We think that it might be a place called Kerbet Cana, uh, and that's an uninhabited ruin about nine miles from where Jesus lived, Nazareth. Jesus, his disciples, and the mother of Jesus, that's Mary, were all invited to a wedding in Cana. They were all invited to go to it. And I, I tell you, I think that because it's him and it's his disciples and, and especially that it's the fact that it's his mother, I think this tells us that this was somebody in their family or a relative that was getting married. And so some relative, maybe a close neighbor, somebody that they knew had invited all of them to come to this, to this wedding. Maybe somebody in the bridal party. I don't know. But I think the fact that the whole darn family was involved says something about the nature of the relationship. So this was probably somebody that was related to Jesus, Mary, somebody, and the disciples were there too. Now, weddings in the first century, in first century Israel, were, were not just what, what we typically do here where we have like one day, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a DJ, so I know it's a long day for me. 
especially if it's a Catholic gig, good night. These people go on and on and on and on. If you're Catholic, I don't mean to offend you, but you can cut it down to about five and a half hours. That'd be perfect. But literally, like an all-day thing. But some of our weddings are five and a half, six, seven hours. I just did one for you guys, and that was, I don't know, six hours or so. But that's all she wrote in our culture. But back in ancient Israel, it was like a whole week. It was a week-long celebration. Some of you were thinking, man, that was $25 a plate for my catering. Imagine feeding people for an entire week. All the wine they could drink, all the food they could eat. It was a major, major, back in this day, a major, major social event. Kind of wish we did it like that today because I would make an absolute fortune. (laughs) But I would be so exhausted, right? Red Bulls every day, all day. The celebration lasted about a week or so, and it featured feasting and, and, and drinking wine and stuff all week long. And in our culture, I don't know if it's still customary, I think it is, I think this, this customary deal is kind of dying out, but in our, in our culture, uh, it's customary for the bride's family to actually pay for the celebration. Any of you heard of that? That's like the, that was kind of a standard thing. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't work anymore? They don't do that anymore? What happened? What happened? We're dying as a nation. Hallelujah. Oh, because you, you have three daughters. Well, you should be paying, dude. But that's right. I mean, how, how long ago did that get cut off? Because that's how it was, right? It was like that where the bride's family had to take care of all of that. And I tell you, if you were like Carl and you had a bunch of girls, boy, you were in trouble. You just pray that they stay single. In ancient Israel culture, it was customary for the other side to pay for it, the groom's side. So the groom and his family was responsible for funding the celebration. As I said, it was a week long. You can imagine how expensive it would be. Now, at this particular wedding ceremony and celebration that's a week long, a major crisis loomed, right, when the wine ran out. Why did it run out? Because the supply was insufficient. Whoever bought the wine for that week did not buy enough. Did not buy enough. This is like like the beer and the wine running out three hours before your event ended. That could be good because then those crazy cousins don't drink too much. Or it could be a disaster, right? It could be terrible. I'm sorry, we have to switch to Sprite. You know, I don't know. So there was not enough wine at this particular thing that's a week long. It was running out or it had run out. And I'll tell you what, this mistake in not purchasing enough wine for this week-long thing could, in this culture, in this day, potentially stigmatize the couple and their families for the rest of their lives. This wouldn't have just been, oh, heck, we ran out of wine This would be like, I cannot believe what they have done. Let's make sure they know about it the rest of their lives. This would have stigmatized them and and, and made them out to be a bad couple or at least his side for the rest of their lives. It could have even left the groom open for a lawsuit, literally from a lawsuit from the bride's family. That's not a good way to start off with in-laws. The dynamic's already hard, but man, if you've got them all ticked off at you because, you know, that side, I just tell you, I knew there was something wrong with that side. When they ran out of wine, it was confirmed, right? Now we're going to be stitched to this family the rest of our lives. Let's make their life a living hell. This is the kind of mentality that's going on in this here. And, and now this wine's running out. Man, this is like an absolute crisis. It's a bad, bad thing. And I'll tell you, the first person to really notice what's going on is the mother of Jesus, Mary. What does that tell us? That she was like crazy, super perceptive and just had intuition and I think there's about to be a problem. No, it doesn't tell us that she had ESP or anything weird like that. It tells us that she was probably involved in the catering. It tells us that she might have been responsible for supplying the wine for the event. She may have been involved in the planning or something. I mean, she just could have been a close family member and very concerned about that, that about, you know, about somebody's um, uh, reputation, all that. That, that, that. That's feasible. But she could have also been involved in the planning. So in a way, maybe her reputation was on the line. Certainly would have been if she would have been tied to the groom's side. 
She realized what's going on, and what does she do? She goes to her son for help. Oh, my goodness, we're about to run out of wine, or we've just run out. Oh, light bulb, my son can work miracles, right? You got a son like that, you go to him for a lot of things, right? So she goes over to Jesus. She requested that he do something about the situation, that maybe he fixed the situation by using his supernatural powers to create more wine. We're in trouble. We don't have the money or, the, or a, a vehicle to go get more stuff. Bevmo's closed today. Can you take care of this? What are we going to do? Now, I think she was involved in the planning because she goes right to the, someone who can fix it for her. I don't know. Craziness, craziness. Maybe if she was involved in the planning and, 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 and she fell short in that area, that maybe the family, the groom side, would be saying it's Mary's fault. Let's take her to court. It's not our fault. Who knows? Now, this request of hers to Jesus shows that she understood that her son possessed supernatural power and he was capable of performing miracles. And this is really interesting because according to this text, he hadn't performed one yet. So somehow she knew. Now, there are extra biblical writings out there and you read those that talks about him turning you know, clay into birds and all this stuff when he was a kid. But those writings, those apocryphal writings have been rejected by the church for 2000, almost 2,000 years now, maybe not quite that long. But none of those things are uh, considered canon, which means true scripture. So there's all sorts of stories about Jesus doing this and that, him throwing a boy off a roof so the boy could land and break his neck, then Jesus could go down there and heal him. <laughs> what? Like Jesus is Dennis the Menace. I don't know where people come up with this stuff. It sounds like Hollywood. So there's a lot of things that are written out there, but they're not truthful. They're not accurate. This text says this is his first miracle, right? It's the first of his signs. But is it actually the first miracle he ever performed? As a man in the flesh, yes. But we just learned in chapter 1, the first couple of verses, that he was the agent. He is the agent in creation. When the Father spoke, uh, let there be light, the Son created light. And let there be trees, and the Son created... So he, he's, he's very much involved in supernatural events prior to this, in eternity past, or when creation came into existence. So this isn't technically his first, but it is his first as God incarnate, right? Uh, let's see. I like how John refers to, um, he refers to it as signs. You notice that? He calls them signs. That's kind of an interesting thing there. Well, let me, let me wait to get to that. I don't know why I jumped up to that. But that was the first of his signs. Now look at part two with me. So we've got the request. That's Mary going to Jesus saying, we've got a big problem. All right. Now we've got the response. This is the response. And it's twofold. You've got the response of Jesus, right, how he responds to his mom. And then you've got the response of the master of the feast. So we'll look at A first, the response of Jesus, verses 4 through 8. And Jesus said to her, and I like the way Paul read it because it was like, woman! Yeah, it was kind of funny. Probably not the right way to read it, but um, still kind of, I was laughing in the back. Like, woman, what you talking about? Nah, it's not right. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this, that's probably the right tone, woman, what does this have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then it says in verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And then the last little verse there, it says, so they took it. So they did it. Now, we have to talk about the woman part. Woman, right? What, what, is, what is this? He calls his mom woman. Does that seem a little offensive to maybe some of you moms out there? You'd be like, that's, that's not what you normally call me, baby. Right? Woman? Okay, something's changing here in our relationship, obviously. He calls her woman. And I think when I first read that, I thought, well, that, that, that seems a little odd, right? 
Well, actually, it was a polite but not intimate form of address, similar to our English word ma'am. But isn't that kind of weird, too, to call your mom ma'am? Right? It's a little strange, right? Well, I'll tell you, it was intentional. It wasn't rude. It wasn't out of place. It wasn't disrespectful. Jesus fulfilled the commandment in honoring his parents. He did exactly what he was to do. He never breached any of God's laws. But it actually did signal a change in their relationship. It firmly informed her that the mother-child status that had been in place up to this point was in a sense over. And for now on, for now on, from this point, from this wedding on, she was to address him as Savior rather than Son. So Jesus is correcting her, lovingly correcting her, telling her, I do not want you to think of me in the way that you have all throughout my whole life. Now, he's been an adult for many years here. And, and moms tend to just want to keep going with that whole, that's my baby thing, all that, right? I get it. I understand that. I think my wife will probably do that. But here he's telling her, by calling her woman, I want you to think of me differently. Because he is the Savior. Now, if you examine the Gospels, you will see that Jesus never refers to his mother, never refers to Mary as mom or mother. I did a little research. He never once calls her mom, mama, mother, never. He doesn't do it. Listen to John chapter 19, 26 through 27. We'll get there in about 40 years. Jesus was literally hanging on a cross right here. And it says, when Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, he said to John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Basically, what he did was he said, This is your son, this is your mom. You guys continue on in that kind of relationship. I'm dying on the cross. So even there, he does not refer to her as mom or mama or mother or anything like that. He calls her woman. He calls her ma'am. He kind of did that throughout the Gospels. Jesus also told her, he didn't just say woman to her, he also told her that, that he said, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Now, this is also corrective. It's as if he said, woman, you are misunderstanding why I am here. You are misunderstanding why I have come to earth. I have not come to provide parties with booze, to do beer runs, but to save people, right? See, there's a trivial aspect to her request. You're, this is the Savior of the world. She's got to start to realize these things. He's come to save his people, to, to live a perfect life, to, to die a horrific death, to be buried for three days, to be risen victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell, Right? This is why he's come and he's being asked to create some wine at a wedding. See, in his mind, I'm on a mission. I've got something that I'm doing here. And, and he understands it. And I think she does in a sense. But right here, she's caught up in the moment. She needs to realize what his actual purpose is. What does this have to do with me? That's what he's saying to her. The phrase, my hour has not yet come is usually associated with Jesus' death and glorification. That's usually. He says this throughout the gospel several times. But when he does it, it is in reference to him dying on the cross. It's in reference to his glorification. And here it is corrective as well because it's, you're not understanding what I'm about right here in this particular moment. And also Mary had a, a, an earnest desire for her son to sort of step out and reveal himself as Savior, as God in these things. Mary understood who he was. It'd be easy to get caught up in the moment and forget that, but she understood. But there's also this sense here that she wants him. Okay, so this is kind of like, this is a big wedding. There's a lot of people here. What a perfect opportunity for you to do something to reveal who you are in a fuller sense. That's also what she's after here. She's after that. And he says, it's not, my, it's not my hour to do that. That's what he says to her. And this was his way of also letting her know that he was 
following a divine timetable rather than her timetable. Okay, moms, it's natural for moms to have a particular schedule and timetable and they do things and they want their kids to do things and all that. And this can go on for years after, you know, what are you doing? You know, you need to do this, you need to do that. And it's like, hey, I don't even live there anymore. There's that sense here too. He's telling her that, that I am going by a divinely appointed timetable. That's the correction there as well. He's letting her know that her desires for him, what she wants for him, will not take precedence over the will of the Father. That's what he's communicating to her in these little statements. Woman, my hour hasn't come. What does this have to do with me? That's what he's saying. You understand what you want, but you need to understand who I am and that I go by a whole different set and time. That's what he's saying. And after their exchange, Mary summoned the servers and told them to do whatever Jesus commanded. To me, that looks like mother prevailed over son, doesn't it? Somehow, they end up getting their kids to do whatever it is they want, even though it might not be easy to get them to do it. It looks like that. It has the appearance of that, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. She didn't prevail over him. That's not the right way to interpret verse 5, and I think some people try to do that maybe to heighten their relationship, but there's no prevailing of her over him here at all. Her request and the miracle that he's about to perform here actually did fit into the Father's plan. It was the Father's sovereign plan. Jesus isn't contradicting anything by correcting her. He just wants her to understand who he is. But the request and the miracle was all by sovereign decree. He was there to perform this miracle. He did not compromise. He did not give in to her as some try to speculate. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He said it over and over in the Gospels. He came to do the will of the Father. And I'll tell you what, everything he did was the will of the Father. He never did less than the will of the Father. He never did more than the will of the Father. He executed the will of the Father to a T because if he didn't do that, he couldn't be our Savior. He did nothing more, nothing less. This miracle and what's playing out here is all part of the plan and he knows it, but he's still got to tell people that don't understand these things. And there were six stone jars nearby. They held water that was used in Jewish purification rituals. Could have had to do with hand washing or the kinds of things that they were into that they did. They kept fresh water nearby. They didn't keep them, uh, the water in earthenware because they felt like that was con it could be contaminated. They kept them in stone. And these were large, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants or servers, because really they're like caterers here, told the servers to fill them up with water, and they obeyed and filled them to the brim. Now, you just think about that. They got their water from wells. How long would it take to fill up six of these things with that many gallons? Probably a little bit of time. They don't think it was instant. They had to go over and get bucket after bucket and fill these things up. But they did obey what Jesus instructed. Now, I want to make a couple of, or maybe several quick observations before we move on. First, how many of you are familiar with the process of making wine? I know James is. I don't even see him. He's around here somewhere. Is he out there? Oh, he'd love this part. But it, there's a fermentation process involved, right? And according to, to my research, it's three to seven days. I thought it took a long time, but it, I guess it's three to seven days, okay? Jesus accomplished this in the blink of an eye. There's no fermentation process. When he made wine from the water, it was instant. He didn't say, fill them up and get back to me in a week. He said, fill them up. He converted them, and that was it. There's a supernatural event that takes place right here. This is one observation. Another observation. By working this miracle, Jesus literally displayed that he has power 
over nature, that he has authority over nature, right? Because he bypassed the process for making wine. Not only did he bypass part of it in, in terms of, but think of the ingredients. What do you make wine from? Water? No. You make it from grapes. So not only does he, because he uses supernatural power, possess it, he bypasses the fermentation process. He bypasses the ingredients. He takes water and instantly transforms it into wine. He's displaying his power over nature and his authority over the natural realm and over natural items. Put it that way. And another thing to note, by creating wine, Jesus, fully knowing what he's doing here, was actually pointing to the future. There is something prophetic about the conversion and the existence of wine here now after he makes it. There's something prophetic about that. In the millennial kingdom, that's the kingdom to come when Jesus returns, right? The thousand-year reign. Many of you have heard of that. In that particular kingdom, the people of God shall rejoice over the abundant supply of grain, wine, oil, and livestock. There will be so much of the best absolute wine in this kingdom for God's people. There'll never even be any shortages. So in a sense, when he turns this water to wine, he's pointing to the future. There's coming a day where there will be wine in abundance for the people of God. And just think about wine. It makes the heart merry. They, they, they use it for medicinal things. It was very, very important in this culture. Very important. It's incredible what he's doing here. I like what Jeremiah 31.12 says. Our lives will be like a... And he's talking about the millennial kingdom to come, right? Where the wine will be... Our lives will be like a watered garden and we shall languish no more. The idea of no shortages of anything, no shortage of wine, food, staples, whatever it is. In Joel 3.18 it says, And in that day, speaking of the kingdom, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. God's abundant provision in the kingdom. Jesus is essentially pointing to that. Now, Jesus responded, right? We're still talking about how he responded to Mary. He really responded in four ways according to this text. He corrected Mary, right? And he did it lovingly. He wasn't disrespectful. You got to know who I am and what I'm about. He corrects her. He instructed the servers to fill the jars. He performed the miracle of converting water to wine. And he instructed the servers to take some of that new wine to the master of the feast. The master of the feast may be similar to a wedding coordinator or maybe even a DJ who's there emceeing the whole event. Maybe similar to that. How many of you had a DJ or a master of ceremonies at your event and they kind of led the event and made sure things were going cool, right? You had that? <laughs> this would have been like the MC. This would have been like somebody who's leading and spearheading the event and, and causing the interaction and making sure everything's dialed in, right? Making sure that the guests are well supplied, making sure things run smoothly, right? So now let's take a look at the response of the master of the feast. Verses 9 through 10. So we saw Jesus' response. Now let's look at this guy's response. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, parenthetical statement, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Wow, what a statement, right? Now it looks like the master of the feast was aware of the shortage and the potential catastrophe that, that could have happened here. He, he had to be aware. He's running the event. He was probably frightened and worried about it as well. He knew something was going down here. But when he tasted the replacement wine, and by the way, he had no idea where it come from. He figured maybe the, the bridegroom had it stored somewhere or whatever. 
He didn't know where it was coming. But when he tasted this new wine, this fresh wine that Jesus just made right there, he was absolutely thrilled because he realized something. It was a way better vintage than what they had been drinking for the whole week. It was like the best wine he had ever tasted. You know, he was probably like, well, this is a fantastic vintage. It's a, I can tell it comes from the nether region of the uh, Napa Valley. And, uh, you know, and he was just like, whoa, where does this stuff come from? He was blown away. And he was so excited about this wine, right? Maybe he was a connoisseur, I don't know. He was so excited about it, he immediately goes over to the bridegroom and commends him for saving the best for last. Dude, you, you understand you've broken, you've set a new precedent here. Typically what people do is they put out the really good stuff and then they close with Thunderbird. You've reversed them. Now, I'm a beer guy, right? So, so, so typically you put out the good stuff and you wrap up with Keystone, right? Right? Maybe you, you, maybe you put out Ballast Point and then you end with Coors Light. No comparison. But in this case, it's like you began with Ballast Point and you ended with Pliny the Elder, which is like the best IPA on earth. That's exactly what's playing out here. It's like he tastes it and he's blown away. He goes, oh, man, dude, give me a high five. It's an ancient high five, right, a high three. Gives him a high. He's like, dude, you saved the best for this. This is amazing. Totally blown away. And he had no idea where it had come from. He thought that the bridegroom had, hidden, had it hidden somewhere and then brought it out just at the right time. That's what he was thinking. And I think the only people who actually knew about the, the miracle here were Mary, obviously, the servers, right? Because they were the ones that went and fetched the water and all that. Jesus knew. <laughs> he performed it. And his disciples knew. This miracle averted a social catastrophe, literally. These people would have been ruined. There, there wouldn't have been grace and forgiveness over this. This is you screwed up the party. You ruined it for everyone. And, and by Jesus doing that, I just think it's just pure mercy. It's just pure grace. By Him doing this, He extends mercy and prevents a social catastrophe. And what does He do? Simultaneously preserving the reputations of the groom of his family, maybe even the reputation of Mary, his own mother, who might have been in charge of catering. Now let's look at part three. The Revelation, verse 11a. It says, this, comma, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And this is where I want to talk about signs. I want you to first notice uh, that this was his first miracle. It's clearly stated right here. Up to this point, Jesus had performed no miracles as a man. But, as I said earlier, prior to becoming a man, he was involved in creation and these other things, right? So it's his first miracle. What does that tell us? It tells us that Anything out there that's not in the Bible that's written that says that he did a whole bunch of things as a kid is not true. That's what we have to discern here. That's what we have to pull from this. So when you read those funky things out there about turning birds from clay and all that and saving a kid got pushed down or whatever, it's just a bunch of malarkey. This is the first one that he does in the flesh. I want to stress that point because we get led away by these crazy things that are out there. Crazy stuff. This is his first sign, it says. It doesn't even use the word miracle. In fact, the word miracle doesn't even appear in John's gospel. But the word signs appears about 17 times. Miracle is completely absent. Why did John call Jesus' miracles signs? Right? I don't, did any of your translations say miracle? I think it says signs and probably all of them. It should. Why did John not write miracle? Why did he write signs throughout his whole gospel? He did it because he understood. Yeah, it says miraculous. It is a miraculous sign, but John puts it because he understands the purpose of the miracle. He doesn't want people to be captured by the miracle and led away by the miracle. He wants 
people, his audience, the readers, the listeners back in those days to understand the purpose of the miracle. They serve as signs to those who witness them. Signs that testify to his deity, to his power, right? That's the idea. So when Jesus, and this is how all the miracles are in the New Testament, when one is performed, it has an express purpose, usually to prove the deity of Christ. So he calls them signs because they tell us that Jesus is God. They tell us that he is deity. It is a sign of his deity, of his godness. Every miracle Jesus performed exclaimed, I am God. And every miracle the apostles performed exclaimed, Jesus is God. Every miracle is there to testify to his deity. Know that. That tells us that there is an express purpose behind the miracles. It's not just for this, this, or this, or this effect. It is to prove something about Jesus, right? You got to have that as a default mode when you're talking signs and wonders. And that's another word that appears Wonders, signs and wonders. We see signs and wonders in the New Testament. And in every instance, the ultimate goal is to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, something like that. Now look at the last phrase. Uh, Let's see. This is where we actually see the revelation because that's the part we're on, part three. It says, and manifested His glory. When Jesus turned water into wine, he displayed his divine power and thus revealed his divine nature and glory. That's the revelation. The miracle is the revelation of the fact that he is God. Every time he performed a sign, he revealed, as I said, I'll beat this like a dead horse. I don't care because if anything, I want you to walk out knowing he's God. Because that's the point of this gospel and this text. But every time he performed a sign, it revealed his divine glory, that he has divine glory. You think of some of the things that he did when he ascended the mountain, transfigured himself before Peter, James, and John. What did he do? He revealed his divine glory. The incarnation, and think of it like this too, the incarnation when God became man did not remove the glory of Christ. There's an error out there that says that he didn't have the glory of God when he came to earth. Oh, yes, he did, because you cannot remove the glory of God from God. And if Jesus is God, the glory is there. But I'll tell you what the flesh did. It cloaked it. It kept it hidden from man's eyes. But on occasion, Jesus revealed it to people for a particular purpose, Mount of Transfiguration, through miracles, right? The flesh did not remove his divine glory. It shrouded it and kept it hidden from our eyes. But on occasion, He revealed it. And that's what he's doing here. The revelation is, this is the glory of God we're seeing here play out because he is God. I like what Elmer Towns wrote. If Jesus had not veiled his pre-incarnate glory, he could not have accomplished what he came to earth to do. It was necessary for Christ to hide his glory temporarily as he sought to save the souls of men. After the work of atonement was done, he could pray, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you and before the world existed. Right? John 17, 5, what a neat passage. There were moments where he did reveal his glory. The miracle at Cana is an example, but even it was controlled, and only a select few witnessed it. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't just full-blown reveal himself? Well, at all times, you know, like just full-blown glory all the time. First of all, Elmer Towns says he couldn't have accomplished what he came to accomplish. I mean, that's a fact. But again, he's operating by a divine timetable and schedule. There were appointed moments for everything that he did. Now look at our last part, part four, right? So we've got the request, we've got the response, we've got the revelation, and now we have the result. Verse 11b, just the tail end of 11. And his disciples, what? What'd they do? They believed. They believed. According to verses 1 through 11, we've just walked through them, right? The miracle at Cana had a threefold purpose. First, 
It rescued friends and family from a social catastrophe. Second, it revealed the divine glory of Jesus Christ. Third, it resulted in faith. It resulted in faith. Jesus' first disciples, those who were with him at the wedding, Andrew, John, Peter, uh, Philip, Nathaniel, what did they do? They believed in him when they witnessed the miracle. They believed in him when they saw him do what he did. You have to understand, this is not first-time faith, okay? The Holy Spirit had, had already wrought and accomplished for real saving faith. He had already accomplished that in their hearts. Chapter 1 makes it absolutely clear where they're running around acknowledging Him as Messiah and telling everyone about Him and being Messiah. So they were already saved. So this is not saving faith. That's already present, Okay, this was a deepening of their faith, a strengthening of their faith, a broadening of their faith. The signs that Jesus performed, and we see them in the Gospels, they have a dual purpose, not just to, to reveal His divine power, glory, and deity, but also to help the faith of the disciples grow. He even performed miracles for their benefit so that they could grow and believe and grow in that belief. That's what we see playing out here. Now let's take a look at our last verse and then we'll begin to wrap it up with, with an application. You still with me? We've, been covered, we've covered a lot of stuff. I've been moving quick. I hope I didn't lose anyone. But it really is a simple text. You've got this one verse here that all the commentators that I read, they put it on the, on the next section. I, I'm, I'm going to deal with it right now. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So after the wedding at Cana, Jesus and his, his whole posse here, his, his family, his mother, and it even says his brothers. How many of you knew that Jesus actually had stepbrothers? Pretty interesting, right? His mother, he takes his whole family, his mother, his brothers, maybe Joseph, his father, was already passed away by this point. I think that's why he wasn't with them. But he got your, he's got his mother here, he's got his brothers, he's got his disciples, right? They all go to Capernaum. Capernaum was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is also known as the City of Galilee and Bethsaida. We've already seen Bethsaida in chapter 1, probably the same city. At its apex, it had about 1,500 residents. That was actually a very, very large city in those days. It was a big place. It's a fishing village right on the sea. And it is significant for a handful of reasons. I'll just fly through them so we can get to the application. First, Jesus, and this is so interesting. I had forgotten about this. But Jesus actually moved to Capernaum early on and made it his ministry headquarters. How many of you knew that? That's pretty interesting, isn't it? It's at about this point in his ministry, at the very onset, that he actually moves there, sets up residence, and uses it as a headquarters for his ministry. He did so much ministry in Capernaum, it's not even funny. So, that happened. Second, Jesus taught in the local synagogue at Capernaum, and he performed a ton of signs and wonders there. So not only did he use it as his headquarters, he had a robust ministry in Capernaum. It was there that he preached his famous sermon, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Remember that? That's where he preached that famous sermon. Third, Capernaum was one of the three cities. This is where it gets really interesting. One of the three cities Jesus anathematized or cursed for unbelief. How many of you knew that? In Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, Jesus said, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For, and listen to what he says of the city. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, remember Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities that were destroyed? He says, if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have, it would have remained until this day. If I was back in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and had done what I did here in your city, Sodom would still be here. It would have never gotten destroyed because those crazy people would have believed. They would have repented. That says a lot about Capernaum, doesn't it? He anathematized it. He pronounced a curse on it. 
because the people there were so hard-hearted, would not relent, would not repent, would not believe, even though he did miracle after miracle and preached the bread of life and these other sermons. The people there wanted nothing to do with him. Fourth, it was the home of hometown of Andrew and Peter. At one point, Jesus even visited their house and healed Peter's mother-in-law. She had a fever, and she was laying on a couch or a bed, and she was very, very sick, and he healed her. And she immediately got up and started tending to them, started doing her housework, prepared a meal. Pretty cool. That is Capernaum in a nutshell. Now let's begin to wrap it up. Let's begin to wrap it up. When Jesus turned water into wine, he displayed his divine power and revealed his divine glory. He basically proved that he is God, that he is God incarnate, God in flesh, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is Messiah. There's so much packed into this little miracle and every sign that he performed, but that, that's the thrust of this text. He performs the miracle. He turns the water into wine, and it reveals that He is God, that He is glorious, that He is Messiah. That is the main point of this passage. Anything else that you pull from it is secondary. Not that it isn't important, but the miracle is here, and this story is here to tell us that He is God, to tell us that He is God. This particular story is, is, is meant to not only inform us of those things, right? His divine power, divine glory, divine identity. But, but, in the most extraordinary way, remind us of his capabilities, right? To remind us of what he can do in our lives today and right now. It's not just an old tale. It tells us who he is and what he is capable of doing right now. Why? Because he lives forever and ever and ever and ever. He is alive. He is capable. In fact, when Jesus turned water into wine, which I think is an extraordinary miracle because you've got water, you've got wine, they don't mix, it doesn't happen, there's no fermentation. He does something that's extraordinary, totally bypasses natural law, everything, when he turns the water into wine, he essentially shows us that there is literally nothing outside of the scope of his supernatural power. I think it's one of the simplest and most humble of his miracles. He raised somebody from the dead. That's at another level. But even this simple miracle shows us that his supernatural power has no bounds. It is ultimately capable, and even today, right now. Can you think about it in terms of, of logic? If Jesus, and I'll just ask a series of rhetorical questions and, and answer them, but if Jesus can turn water into wine, then He can certainly cause dead sinners to live. Right? If he has the power to overcome nature and to produce something that totally contradicts it, then he has the power to overcome our natural state of spiritual death and raise us to life, right? If Jesus can turn water into wine, he can most certainly wash away our sins and reconcile us to God. If he can take something that can never become this, he can certainly do that with us. He can take all of our sins and by his blood wash them away as far as the east is from the west. And not only that, but give us a right standing to the Father to reconcile us to God, which is what salvation is, which is what we need. Why is there so much civil strife and chaos because people do not have God. They are left to themselves. You see, if he can turn water into wine, he can most certainly 
make people like me who was dead in his sin live. And he can wash away our sin and reconcile us to God. This is awesome. If Jesus can turn water into wine, he can make us new creations with a disposition of of love and honor and respect toward God. He can give us a new identity as a son or daughter of God. What do you think these people out here in the world are pursuing? An identity in this, an identity in that. None of those things are going to pay any dividends. You go from one to the next. But the identity that Christ has secured for His people, He makes us new creations. We're adopted as sons and daughters. That's that, Being a Christian, that is the greatest identity that we could ever have. If He could turn water and wine, He can most certainly do that. If Jesus can turn water into wine, He can bring to completion the good work that He began in us. Have you ever wondered? Maybe you're a Christian and you, you love Jesus, but your life is it's hard and you struggle with sin and these things, and, and sometimes you wonder, man, man, is this not only is this real, but am I actually going to get from point A to point B? Because I certainly don't feel like I'm going to. No, he, 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 if he has the power to turn water into wine, he has the power to sanctify us and to bring us to glory, to complete the good work that he began in us. That's a huge encouragement for me because I, I'm a struggler. Big time. I look at that miracle and I say, there's hope for me. Hey, Jesus, if you can do that, then you can fulfill your purpose for me. It's just a simple, just a simple miracle. Just a simple miracle. You see, if he can turn water into wine, he can, he can bring to completion the, the good work of grace in our hearts and in our lives. And he can take us from from this dead sinner and raise us to new life and bring us all the way through life and to this point of glory where we step into his presence. And, and, and even after that, there's another stage that happens that's just going to be so mind-blowing. It's called resurrection where we get a new body. He's going to do it. The, the miracle proves it. If... Jesus can turn water into wine. He can restore our broken relationships. I just told you there's nothing outside of the scope of His supernatural power. Now, I'll admit some of these things take our cooperation. He don't need our approval or, or, or power to fulfill His power in our lives, but we certainly need to obey His word. But if He can, restore, if he can turn water into wine, He can help us reconcile to those in our lives that need to be reconciled to. He can help to restore and fix our relationships. He can. You know, whether it be to a son or a daughter or a cousin or an ex-husband or an old boyfriend or to a parent, whoever, He can help us do that. He can. And I think so often it, it's us that get in the way of that because we just get so tired of the garbage. Maybe somebody's hurt us and we're just like, it's hopeless. They don't get it. Maybe it's us that don't get it. Maybe, maybe we're not understanding something of the nature of God and, and the long-suffering patience of God that we're supposed to somehow manifest on this side of glory and, and extend it to people who have hurt us Just think about it. If he can turn this to this, then he can certainly change the dynamics in our relationships. If, if Jesus can turn water into wine, he can prosper us in ways we never imagined. Not just talking about a fat bank account. There are so many forms of prosperity. I'll tell you, one of the best prosperities you can ever have is the joy of the Lord. Oh, it, it's way better than money. If he can turn water into wine, he can most certainly meet our needs and prosper us in the ways 
that we need. Even the birds of the air, he takes care of. If, if Jesus can turn water into wine, he can most certainly heal our addictions. He can. He can. He's healed some of mine. I spent 10 years in a really, really dark place with anxiety and depression. I took Paxil every day, and, and when that didn't work, I, I took Ativan and did whatever I could. When I first got saved, it was like that cloud and that burden was just lifted. It was an addiction that I had. The porn and things that I used to look at, he's healed me of those things. If he can turn water into wine, he can deal with your pornography. He can deal with your addiction to pills. He can deal with your, he can supernaturally overcome those things, those lesser gods. Something I'm dealing with now, and I'm realizing this even as I speak right now. If Jesus can turn water into wine, he can definitely turn our sorrow to joy. That's something he can do. How many of you have experienced that? That you've just been in the depths of sorrow over a loss or something like that, just in so much pain, and then you get flooded with that supernatural joy and that peace that transcends all understanding. You have people around you going, what the heck is wrong with you? You just take something? Yeah, I took Jesus. I'm on Jesus. That's, that's what I'm on. I got Jesus. He's all I ever need. Could the list not go on and on and on and on and on and on and on? You're probably thinking, how long is he going to preach? I just want to challenge you. Yeah, all of these things. If he can turn water into wine, he can do all of these things, right? Is there something required of us? Yeah, there is. What must we do to see the supernatural power of Jesus unleashed in our lives? We must believe. We must believe in who Jesus is. We must believe in what Jesus accomplished for us. And we must believe in what Jesus can do. You want to see the supernatural power of Jesus unleashed in your life? Follow the examples of the disciples in verse 11. Believe in Him. The Bible says a lot about faith, so much there's no way I can handle it in a hundred sermons, but it talks about faith all the time. Two passages come to mind as I literally close up. James 1, 6 through 7. It says, the one who doubts... Is like a wave, and doubt is the opposite of faith, right? The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Listen to this. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. If you don't believe, don't expect anything. But I like the counter to it, right? Mark 9 23, everything is possible for one who believes. Everything. No limit. At one point, Jesus even said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which in that day was about the smallest seed they knew of, you could move mountains. The person who believes everything is possible, all of that is available in there. The person who doubts, who does not believe, don't expect a thing. I wonder if the reason why we don't see at times the supernatural power of Christ in our lives is because we don't believe. We like to read the scripture. and We like to say it out loud. Oh, look at that. That looks good. But at the end of the day, we just don't believe it. So my question to you is, how has the Lord challenged you this morning? What is he calling you to do? Maybe for some of you it's to... It's to repent and believe in Him for the very first time. You've just never even been a Christian. You don't care. You've never cared about those things, but somehow the Holy Spirit this morning 
has worked that out in your heart and you believe now. You're like, man, I, I want Jesus. Well, believe in Him. Maybe, maybe for some of you that's the, the step. Maybe for some of you others it's just you've been racked with doubts and, and all these disappointments and things like that. And, and, and Jesus is just simply reminding you, I turned water into wine. There ain't nothing I can't do for you. Believe me. Believe in me. Believe in what I can do. Maybe, just maybe, we'll see something happen. Amen? All right, that's all I have to say.